0: Our message is near the back of the Bible in the book of Jude. Now, the message will encompass the whole book, but for our reading, I will read uh, verses 1 through 4, verse 16, and verses 20 and 21. And so let's go ahead and hear God's word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask you now to bless this, the preaching of it. Pray, Lord, that you would have your Holy Spirit um, open ears, uh, convict people of sin and righteousness, draw people close to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the last in the series of these uh, short stories. And so today we have Jude, which is one of the largest. Uh, I think two of the books we covered this month had 25 verses. This one has 25. Um, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, Jude, the writer of this book, and James, the writer of the book that just is briefly uh, back a few books, uh, were both half-brothers to Jesus. And yet, in the uh, greeting of their epistles, they only refer to themselves as bondservants. So there were no bragging rights, really, that they could have. Jude and James were both bondservants of Christ, and yet they uh, were half-brothers, and yet they regarded themselves, first and foremost, as his slaves, as his servants. Um, They knew that that blood connection was... Um, not really guaranteeing them anything more than what it guaranteed any others. They were in God's uh, family because uh, God had made it so, not because their blood made it any more special. And they were writing, Jude was writing to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So you see Jude here introduce the Trinity. Um, when I was studying to become an elder, uh, one of the things you have to really be think- thoughtful of is you are asked to defend orthodoxy. And one of the aspects of orthodoxy that you're called upon to defend is the Trinity. Uh, People attack the Trinity all the time. Uh, Heresies are always attacking the Trinity. And so I would like to let you know that Jude is excellent. It gives you a defense of the Trinity at both the start of the book and at the end of the book. So if you remember nothing else about the sermon today, remember that it's a great one. Uh, to represent the Trinity in these single verses. So, called by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by God the Father, preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is again mentioned later in verses 20 and 21, which I just read. You'll find throughout this message that Jude loves to speak in threes. I'll draw attention to some of them, but some of them you'll probably just perceive on your own. Um, He will sometimes add a fourth But yet, he speaks in threes a lot. The the next verse shows one. Now, this one is common in Scripture. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Multiplied, the word for multiplied there, you want to picture having all of these just be poured out upon you. You're inundated in these things. Love, mercy, and peace. Jude is asking that these people that are reading this letter have this all lavished Upon them, He's writing to two groups of people. Verses 3 and 4 uh, synopsize those groups. Verse 3, beloved, and verse 4, certain men. Now, he identifies the two groups in these three and four verses, but then he also uh, proclaims their destiny, and he shares with you how they behave. What is their conduct? So first, though, where are both of these groups of people? I found it necessary to write to you, certain men have crept in unnoticed. What have they crept into? They've crept into the church. So this whole letter that Jude is writing here is warning his readers that where you will find the greatest attacks against Orthodox Christian belief is in the church itself. And it's probably where you are likely to be most unguarded in wanting to defend against unorthodox beliefs because you think you walk into a Christian church that they're going to be preaching the truth. But that's not always the case. Oftentimes they're preaching lies. So these two groups, beloved and certain men, are portrayed throughout Scripture in many, many ways tares and wheat, goats and sheep, lost and saved. Specific instances, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. And then you have the peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we're talking about the forgiven and the forsaken, the elect and the non-elect. This pattern is all throughout the Bible and all throughout our history. People either love God and have been forgiven by him, or they hate God, and they are in process of being forsaken by Him. And so never forget that, that God distinguishes between all of us on this earth. There are believers, and there are unbelievers. There is no other group, two groups. You are either the beloved of God, in verse 3, or you are in company with these certain men. So we know that their destiny... The beloved are marked out for salvation. He references their common salvation. And the others are marked out for condemnation. Un- ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. So these are people in the church who say, you can do anything you want. God no longer cares. And what he's specifically referencing here, this lewdness, this is homosexuality. These are men in their church advocating actively for homosexuality. And so they're attempting to say, God doesn't care anymore. It's all about grace. Can't you get that through your thick skulls? God has forgiven us. We can live how we want. And so it's the conduct then that is this last element. These sinful thoughts and actions come naturally to all of us not just the unbelievers, all of us, we will devolve. Why is it then that he says, contend earnestly for the faith? If it was easy, you would not need to contend earnestly for the faith. If it was easy, we would just enter onto this path heading to heaven and remain on that path. And yet, it's not easy. It's not easy to remain orthodox. It's not easy to remain fighting against sin all your life. And so we must be encouraged to do so. We must be shown that there are consequences to living foolish, sinful lives in opposition to our God and Savior. I want to point out one little phrase within verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is pointing out that it's done. Christ has come. Christ has paid the price. The apostles have laid the foundation of the church. We now enter into time building on that foundation, but no more revelation is needed. No more revelation is promised. And nearly all heresies want to say that's not true. There is something you're missing. There is more than these 66 books. And so that's your first indicator that you're dealing with people who are heretics when they're trying to get you excited about something that isn't here as being a better source of truth to guide your lives. Let me read verses 5 through 7. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what we see here is a focus, and there are four things that you'll see focused on relative to apostates. And this is the first, and this is their destiny. The destiny of apostates. Jude says that he reminds us, I want to remind you. He begins the paragraph with that sentence. I want to remind you, though you once knew this. In other words, we tend to forget As orthodox as we might think we are, we may tend to forget that there are consequences for sin. And these consequences apply to every human that's ever walked this earth. There is a pattern here. There are three acts of disobedience introduced. Each one is met by God with a form of discipline. So in verse 5, the disobedience is unbelief. He saved the people and yet destroyed those who did not believe. God killed them for their unbelief. In verse 6, the angels did not keep their proper domain but left their abode, and now he has reserved those fallen angels in everlasting chains for judgment. So they have been imprisoned by God for having abandoned their purpose on the earth for which he created them. And then in verse 7 is the perversion, the sexual perversions. And so when we cast off God's design for us, we can do anything we want. And what you'll find culture doing is devolving. Whatever is sensual, whatever is pleasurable, whatever essentially is an affront to God, that's typically the path that's taken. And so God, again, punished them with what is regarded as eternal Fire, the vengeance of eternal fire is how it's described in verse 7. Now, I want you to note this. Unbelief of that first generation coming up out of Egypt, what happened to them? They died. They were killed. They physically died. The angels, what happened to them when they abandoned their design? They were imprisoned by God. So think of this who else do we know from Jesus' parables was imprisoned after death and was yet speaking to Abraham? It was regarded as being in Abraham's bosom. We had the rich man of Lazarus. And so you had the rich man who had partaken of all the good things in this world, and yet when he died, he is in torment. And yet he can see paradise. He can see Lazarus, this man that had gathered scraps from under his table. And in asking if he can go dip his water and bring it to him, he knows that Lazarus has something he doesn't. Freedom. Freedom to move around. He's also not in torment. So, for rebellion, they got imprisoned, and there is this bondage beyond the grave, Those Jews were killed by God, and now we see that there is bondage beyond the grave for those that died in disobedience to God. And then the third one, what is it? Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed as an example to us of the vengeance God brings and the eternal fire that brings that vengeance. And so you can see then that this is a picture of hell. So you see the progression that Jude introduces here. First, there is physical death. Then there is uh, imprisonment, awaiting judgment, then there is judgment and torment of eternal hell. So this is the destiny of all that rebel against God. And so verses 8 through 11 begins the next section, and let me read it first. But these are words, these are the words of the apostates. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said simply, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so again, we have this triple example. He loves speaking in threes. And so he speaks of them defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and speaking evil of that which they don't understand. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 12, because it has two illustrations I want to use here. So in Matthew 12, starting at verse 33, we read this. Jesus telling a parable. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will Give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So again, these are words, the importance of words. Our words are not meaningless, and the words of the apostates are not meaningless. They are going to be judged for this. They are going to suffer the eternal punishment of hell for what they say, how they mislead people, take them astray. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. Now we know that we don't have all the facts. Humans are finite creatures. We don't know all things. And sometimes we are quick to rush into judgment upon things that we don't know. They're different, we don't like them, and so we go out against them. We go out of our way sometimes to attack those things that are different. This is not wisdom, this is foolishness. Now, if we don't fully understand the question, it's foolishness, but if we know At the start, where people are taking us. Then we know it's wisdom. So what you have to do then is act with wisdom and know all the facts before you step out and make judgments about things. And then in verse 10, we read this. They speak evil of what they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So these are people that are very materialistic oriented only towards the flesh. They don't relate to things of the spirit. They are a mystery to them. They are foolishness to them, just like it says in Corinthians. And so such people, though, become masters at understanding the flesh. That is their expertise. That's where they devote all of their time. And yet, like natural brute beasts, is the way in which they master the flesh and corrupt themselves in the flesh. And then he cites three examples of such conduct, bad conduct from the Old Testament. Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now, you know Cain. Cain and Abel, the very first human born on earth, was a murderer. For years, he was in God's presence. God himself would walk amongst this early earth family. And so he counsels Cain. And yet Cain rejects that counsel. So Cain lures his brother Abel out to the field and kills him. And then what happens when God shows up next? Where is your brother? What does Cain say? He tells him a lie. I do not know. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? As a young person, I grew up in a home where we had no knowledge of God or his word. But I remember that phrase, Because I would hear people ask it of one another, and I would hear them say, am I his keeper? Is it my turn to watch him today? I would hear my family and my friends say this. I had no idea it came from the Bible. But so Cain is lying to God, and he is speaking evil of the man that he's killed, his own brother that he's killed and left out in the field. He's just speaking with such disregard for him. So then, of course, God holds him accountable. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Then when he only, only when he pronounces judgment upon Cain do you see emotion from Cain. Cain had hardened himself against God himself, killed his brother, defied God to do anything about it, and when he did, then he laments, Oh, woe is me! that is the way of the world. That is the way the world reacts whenever you catch them out in sin. Now it matters because now it's affecting me because I am so selfish, I am so self-centered that I couldn't care less about any of the rest of you. It's only when it touches me that I get emotional, that I can express this. That is the way of Cain. And then the second one is Balaam. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And what is it that Balaam did? Balaam was blessed by God. He was God's oracle on earth. And God sent him to bless these people, even though Balak had commanded him to curse them. And yet he still gave Balak evil advice to undermine the people. So Balaam didn't know God. He was used by God as an oracle, but yet he had no regard for God. He wanted what Balak had to offer that God had withheld from him, so he got it in another way. He couldn't pronounce the blessing. Every time he opened his mouth when he was viewing the people, he would only bless them. But later, when he's talking with Balak, he gives him bad advice, do this, do this, do that. And so all of this is about materialism. All of this is about earthly gain. And so in the first, you have what is affecting me, only me, is selfishness. Then you have I want, I want, I want. Then perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now our pride comes into it. And so you see Korah, even though he himself is amongst the Levites, he himself has an honored position in God's economy. It's not good enough. Because there is this Moses who has far more honor than I do, and I hate him for that. Who does he think he is? So that's Korah, that's pride, that's me wanting my way and arrogating it unto myself, if at all possible. This is what these apostates do. This is who they are and what they're doing. Now the next section starts at verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This focuses on the uselessness of apostates. So there, first there was their destiny, and then their words, and now their uselessness. And so we have these four beautiful pictures. I mean, they, what beautiful pictures of apostasy? Uh, but you, So first we have the clouds. Clouds without water carried about by the winds. Now, we live in a time in which most of us don't really depend on the clouds, and so we don't relate to what it must feel like to be dependent on the clouds and see them pass you by day after day after day. When you are experiencing drought, when you are experiencing famine, you see blue sky after blue sky after blue sky, and then, ah, clouds! But they pass you by. And you hate those clouds. Why don't they rain on us? So that is how... Useless, such clouds are. They're not solving your problem. They're just blowing on by. We think of them as pretty pictures in the sky, but that's not what clouds' jobs are. They are very vital to the earth. The next picture is of fruit trees. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So late autumn, no fruit. No fruit came earlier. No fruit's hanging there now. These are useless trees, Here they are, clogging up my orchard, taking up valuable space. I devote time to these trees. I hire people to go prune them, go care for them. And yet this tree does not deserve my attention. This tree is dead. This tree is good for nothing. And then there are the raging waves. The raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Now you see... How you can imagine waves just lapping, 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 and they do they do very little, they would appear to do very little, and yet when you do think of them as doing anything, all you really do is seeing them throw garbage up on the shore. They come up, the tide rises, it leaves all this flotsam there, and then it recedes. And so now all you've got is junk on your beach that you have to keep dealing with, you, you know, we, these beaches don't clean themselves, frankly. If, it keeps, if, you, if your beach keeps getting stuff thrown on it, you have to go out there and deal with it. If you're, if you're living a wealthy lifestyle out in California on the beach, you've got to hire people to go hire all that stuff that shows up. And nowadays, periodically, these dead whales will show up. What do you do? I was reading in one of the books that Tabitha got me, one guy back in 1970, I think it was, He devised a means of getting rid of this whale that was really, really stinking the place up. And he blew it up. But then it went everywhere. And all of these people that thought they were far enough away to avoid it, they all had whale land on them. Stinky, stinky whale. And so, I mean, it's just it's difficult. I mean, how do you deal with things that weigh several tons and they're sitting on your beach? So raging waves are beautiful. It's lovely to be there at the ocean. But they're crashing, they're boisterous, they do nothing. They amount to little in God's economy. Now, we know there's this greater meaning to it, but just appearances. So now, the last one, I use this other picture also, wandering stars. What do you think a wandering star is? Stars, and see, we live in a time in which people say that men existed for you know, hundreds of thousands of years and we were so stupid long ago, and yet then we got smarter and smarter and smarter. Well, but there are these puzzling aspects to our recent history where we see people that obviously knew quite a bit about how to read the heavens, how to tell time, how to how to deal with this. You see Stonehenge and and everybody agrees, yes, these are just huge astrological clocks. They tell times and seasons. God gave that wisdom to men early on. We don't have to puzzle over why this exists. God gave it to them. God gave it to Adam and and at creation and Noah with his sons. God gave wisdom to men. So wandering stars, however, they're worse than useless because they can lead you astray. You depend on the stars that don't wander. They help you navigate the oceans. But the stars that wander, the ones that you can't figure out, the patterns, they can be very deceptive. They're unreliable. They're inconsistent. So now think about these illustrations that Jude has used. The first one was clouds. That's the sky. The next one were fruit trees that are dead. That's the land. The next one was the raging waves crashing on the shore. You're talking about the oceans and the seas. And now you have space. You have wandering stars. He's covered everything that is defining our reality. Uh, Pastor Kaiser gave essentially an excellent introduction to this sermon in the communion meditation. So we have these four things then that Jude is criticizing, that apostates are like this. And then he goes on to quote from a book that no longer exists. It's not in the canon. And yet he quotes from this, this Enoch, the seventh from Adam. We all know Enoch. You've got to love Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I was so envious of Enoch as a young Christian. I mean, I so admired this man that God walked with, and yet God wanted to walk with him so much that he just removed him from this earth so he could be with him all the time. So four ungodlies he refers to in this text. Ungodly people, ungodly deeds, their ungodly way, and their ungodly words. So he's summarizing this by stating that such people These ungodly people have no permanent part in God's economy. And so that was the uselessness, and now we come to the fourth and last section on the apostates, and this is their divisiveness. So I'll read verses 16 through 19. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Unbelievers in their midst that want their way. But they got in. They crept in unnoticed. So obviously, they didn't behave like they would eventually right at the beginning. They want to deceive you at the beginning. They want you to think that they're one of you. And so then they enter into our midst. They become members in our churches. They say all the things that we think Orthodox Christians say and do. But then they begin to undermine. Apostates can do harm to us as individuals, they can do harm within a church, and they certainly do harm to the church overall. And again, he introduces this in a, in a, a set of three, grumblers, complainers, and then I would summarize the walking according to their own lust as sensual mockers. He uses both terms later to define them. So these are these terms that are used to describe these people and their divisiveness, They use words as tools to get their way. They will complain to you if they they think that will help. They will flatter you if they think that you are susceptible to it. And let me tell you, we are all susceptible to flattery. So now they will appeal to the darker aspects of all of our characters, Satan has made these people, God has made these people as a tool for Satan to use for this purpose. We know through God's sovereignty that he allows all this to happen. He's testing us. He's testing us. So now I want you then to examine the influence that people have on you. Consider their character before you go off and are convinced of something evil. I remember years ago, a friend that I lived with once out in California, he was complaining to me about their youth pastor because of a way that he treated one of the other young men in the church, a friend of his. I said, Jason, you are not aware of all the facts. There's something that you don't see. And there's something that your friend is not telling you. And then sure enough, within quick order, he learned that, yeah, there was something big that his friend was not telling him some big aspect of sin in his life that this pastor was trying to get at. And yet all my close friends could see that were friends with this young man, they could only see how unfair the pastor was being to him. And so we must get all the facts. We must act wisely. So again, who influences you? And what is their influence upon you? And always square it with the word. I don't care what your history is with them. People change, and they don't always change for the better. And so be careful who you put your trust and faith in. Always compare it against God. And with all your relationships, always ask yourself, is it you that are influencing them, or are they influencing you? Sometimes we persist in relationships that we know aren't perfect because we think that we have a toehold in this person's life, who is ungodly. Yet, sometimes, we want to maintain that toehold, not for their benefit, but because we are dancing around the edge of orthodoxy. We're dancing around the edge of what we know to be right and true. We like doing that at times. And so you must recognize that and fight against it, not justify it by saying that, oh, I'm going to minister in this person's life. When in reality, you know you are susceptible to the same things. You have to be careful. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he used this phrase, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Because apostates are driven, they're unbelievers, they have no spirit, and so they're driven by their lusts, by their senses, you know that you then have an advantage in seeing through Their lies. This quote, food for the stomach of the stomach for food, Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians, you think that way. You think with your senses. And as Christians, you just really can't do that anymore. You must think spiritually. You must refine your way of thinking. You can't just do what feels right. That's the way the world works. It's not the way God's economy works. Such people, apostates, have no desire for true holiness. And so that is a good indicator as well. Examine their lives. Are they godly? They want you to join them in their sins and don't do it. In the midst of this section, he said, remember. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken. And so now we come on to this next portion where it's all about back to the beloved. Jude has explained these four aspects of apostasy and now he's coming back to you to give you advice as to what to do. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So now, You can see again, he references all the members of the Trinity here in verse 20, praying in the Holy Spirit, in verse 21, keeping yourselves in the love of God, and then looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, every member of the Trinity represented here. And the goal is to build up our faith. We must build up our faith. You can see that this is inward. This is an inward focus in this part. You, beloved, build yourselves up, pray and keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for mercy. It's all about you remaining strong. Why? Why must you remain strong? Go on to the next verse. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So if you are weak yourself, if you lack faith, the stability that faith gives you, you then are of no use to other Christians who are struggling with sin. You're no use in recognizing the apostates in our midst. that must be dealt with, that ought to be rebuked. On some have compassion. And again, he splits the two. So now here you are, you're strong in your faith. What are you going to do then with the strength of faith? How can you minister in other people's lives? And he tells us, on some, have compassion, and you're making a distinction between these people and the other people he's going to get to. Others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And so the former, the ones you're having compassion on, are those that are tormented by their sins. They're coming to you broken. They need help. They want to deal with this. But the latter ones are those that are fighting you every step of the way. And so, with such people, you have to approach them. You can't get as close to them as you can with the people that are already aware of their sins, already struggling with them. You're there to help them minister. And yet other people just want to suck you in. They want you to become a part of their sin. They want to feel justified in this. If they're near a fire, they want to pull you. Into that fire. If they're drowning in the water, they want you to drown with them. And so, see, with the former, you embrace them. You are close to them. You're dragging them to safety. But with the others, you're more from a distance dealing with them. You're tossing them a life perverser. Here, save yourself, buddy. So, now the last part, and this, if you uh, recognize it, this is the uh, benediction that I give every Sunday. And let me read to you the benediction from number six, which is the one that God had given to Moses. And you'll see the difference. There's a big difference between these. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You can see that in that benediction, you are referred to six times. And this benediction... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You could see that the beginning of the benediction begins with this to you, but then it's all focus goes to God. And so see, not all benedictions are about you. All benedictions are about you and God. And yet, there's just a different percentage that applies to each. And so, long, long ago, I'd chosen to use this benediction because it it draws us and causes us to want to bless God. So now, as Christians, you have not only an opportunity, but a responsibility to serve and obey God. And so you have to do that effectively by obeying such wisdom as we've just been walking through. God is so patient with us. If he knows you, if you are his, he is so patient with you. I mean, you might at times sin and sin and harden yourself against God, and yet he lovingly reaches out to you over and over and over and over again. And so he's wooing us to him. He loves us. He wants you to be true to him, and he is so patient in drawing us to himself. So examine your life. Who is it that influences you and doesn't cause you to want to be closer to God? They likely do not produce a godly influence upon you. Now, maybe you produce a godly influence upon them, and that's wonderful, but that means you have to remain that much stronger in the faith to be able to help them, to come to their aid. We can only assist others. If we, ourselves, are strong in the faith. So we're to pray in the Holy Spirit, love God the Father, rest in the mercy of Christ. And so I encourage you, the book of Jude is only 25 verses, very simple to read. I would encourage you to read it and meditate on it regularly. You could easily do this two, three times a year, more. But it's a very good book to keep us orthodox, where we need to be to serve and obey our God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of this book to your church. Um, It's just an everlasting, eternal way throughout the remainder of time on this earth to remain true to you, to remain aware of what it is that you would have us to be and to do. We thank you, Lord, for this word, and we pray that you would abide uh, in it, that you would cause us to abide in it. That we would not find ourselves fighting against your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and lives. Lord, you are merciful to us, you are kind and patient with us, and may we never uh, grow weary of returning to you uh, for forgiveness. This is something that we must do every day. So we pray, Father, please uh, have us to return to you every day, seeking the forgiveness and the mercy that you are always so willing to provide. We thank you for this in Christ's name and for the building up of his kingdom. Amen.